The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis, and today the next passage we come to is Genesis 6, 1 through 7, 24. So I'll be reading a selection of verses from that passage. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives went with him into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 50 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. May God bless the reading of his word. you, Linda. Let's pray this morning. Father, your word is indeed a lamp to our feet and a light for our paths. So shine your light brightly uh, this morning. Lord, help us to see everything we need to see about who you are 
what you've done, what you promise, what you teach, and what you desire for our lives. Minister to us by your Holy Spirit today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the most cherished teachings in the Bible is that God is love. Those are the exact words we find written in 1 John 4, 8. It tells us quite clearly, God is love. And what a wonderful and glorious truth about God that is. And yet, many people seem to embrace this idea of God's love in a way that deliberately excludes the idea of his justice and his judgment. Tim Keller writes uh, that today, many of the skeptics I talk to say, as I once did, they can't believe in the God of the Bible who punishes and judges people because they believe in a God of love. I now ask, what makes them think that God is love? Can they look at life in the world today and say, this proves that the God of the world is a God of love? Can they look at history and say, this all shows that the God of history is a God of love? Can they look at the religious texts of the world and conclude that God is a God of love? By no means is that the dominant ruling attribute of God as understood in any of the major faiths. I must conclude that the source of the idea that God is love is the Bible itself. And the Bible tells us that the God of love is also a God of judgment who will put all things in the world to right in the end. So, the, the same Bible from which we get the concept of God's love in the first place is the very same Bible that teaches us about God's judgment. And that puts those who reject the idea of God's judgment in a very interesting predicament, doesn't it? Because on what basis do they embrace God's love but not his judgment? Yet perhaps more often than not, that's exactly what they do. Most people have no problem with the idea of God's love. It's a very enjoyable subject for them to talk about, and they're happy to do so with a smile on their face. But as soon as someone who suggests that this God of love is also a God of justice who punishes people and judges people for their sins, well, then their expression immediately changes, and it becomes... Uh, clear that they don't like the idea of God's justice or judgment at all. Many times, they'll even say something to the effect of, you know, I could never believe in a God like that. And maybe that's sort of where you're at this morning. Or even if you're not ardently opposed to believing in a God of judgment, maybe you still just honestly struggle with the idea of a God who judges sin. I mean, just thinking of what we read a few moments ago in Genesis 6 and 7 about God 
wiping out the vast majority of the earth's inhabitants through a worldwide flood. And maybe you're not sure whether you want to embrace a God who would do something like that. After all, there are many would say, uh, who would say that the action God undertakes in Genesis 6 and 7 is something only a monster would do. So do those people have a point? Is God some kind of monster for flooding the earth in this passage? Well, my hope is that before our time together this morning is over, that you'll be able to confidently affirm that God is indeed no monster, but rather that he is altogether worthy of our worship, even as he judges people for their sins. Now, the main idea of this passage is that God responds to pervasive and worsening corruption by flooding the earth. And that will be our focus this morning. I know there's a lot of discussion about the historicity of this passage from a scientific perspective, and uh, I'll, I'll just leave that discussion to those who are more knowledgeable about those kinds of things than I am. And instead, for our purposes this morning, I'm just going to go ahead and assume that this God who spoke the universe into existence can very easily also bring about a worldwide flood. That's not a difficult thing for him to do. Now, if you're interested in a scientific defense of the historicity of these chapters from a Christian perspective, then I'd be more than happy to direct you to a number of very helpful resources about that. But our focus this morning will be on the main idea and what this passage is actually teaching us which is that God responds to pervasive and worsening corruption by flooding the earth. In Genesis 6, 5 and 6, we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So at this point, the human race has devolved into a state of unimaginable wickedness. God says that every intention of the thoughts of people's hearts is only evil continually. People now have no hesitation about committing sin, no remorse over their sin, and no limit to the sin they'll commit. The first few verses of chapter 6, describe this world as a place of grotesque sexual perversion. And we can only imagine the utter depravity exhibited in other areas of life as well and how commonplace even the vilest of sins had become. Every intention of the thoughts of people's hearts was only evil continually. And God, quite understandably, it says, is grieved that this creation he had once pronounced as very good in Genesis 131 has now become so inundated with sin. Then verse 7, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. 
the language of this verse and the various kinds of creatures it describes is intentionally crafted to be parallel to the language employed in Genesis 1 about God creating the world. So the implication is that this is now a reversal of sorts of God's creative work. And just as we're told in Genesis 1 verse 2 that the entire earth originally was covered in water, well, everything's about to be submerged in water once again. And God's statement about blotting out the vast majority of living creatures, including humans, is indeed very shocking. Yet this is how bad things had become and how pervasive evil had grown to be in the world. Sort of like an arm or a leg might become so badly infected that the only option is to amputate that arm or leg. Well, the earth was now in a situation where wickedness had to be cut off in order for God's redemptive purposes to be accomplished. Yet verse 8 tells us that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And verse 9 explains why. It says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And uh, let's just acknowledge what um, an achieving that was in the world, especially at that time. I mean, just imagine being born and raised in the most drug-infested, crime-infested neighborhood in Chicago or something. And uh, being born with a, um, you know, your dad left home very early and your mom was just, you know, strung out on drugs all the time. And just imagine rising above all of that to become, a, I don't know, a world-class doctor and uh, a great philanthropist. That would be pretty amazing, right? And uh, in a similar way, Noah beat the odds, so to speak, by rising above the depravity that was all around him and living as a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And of course, that doesn't mean he was completely sinless in the eyes of God, since he still had a sinful nature. However, humanly speaking, he was righteous and blameless compared to the rest of the world at that time. The story then continues in verses 11 through 19. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. So God informs Noah of what's about to happen and tells him to make this enormous boat 
called an ark. We then read in verse 22 that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now, just think for a moment about what this obedience to God required from Noah. It required that he take God at his word, even though there probably wasn't a drop of of rain in the sky. He had to trust God's word, and he pretty much had to reorient his entire life around building this massive vessel. And keep in mind, he didn't have like chainsaws or trucks or cranes or anything like that. So this was even more of a massive undertaking uh, back then than it would even be today. Built, uh, based on some data in Genesis, scholars estimate that it probably took Noah somewhere between 50 and 100 years to build this boat. And he presumably did so with the help of his sons. Remember, he had three sons, but probably not with the help of anyone else. In fact, not only did others not help him, it's very likely that they ridiculed him and that Noah probably became something of a laughingstock in that region. And by the way, that's a good reminder for us that if we're faithful to God, and the instructions God's given us about how we should live, then we also will often find ourselves swimming against the strong cultural current of society. And we have to be prepared for that. You know, we have to be prepared to to swim this way, even when everyone else is swimming the other way, just as Noah had to do in this passage And yet Noah continued to labor year after year faithfully with the confidence that the God, or that that the flood God had announced would indeed eventually happen. We then read in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 7 how Noah and all the animals he had gathered entered the ark. God shuts the door behind them, and the flood waters come, just as God had said they would. Picking up the story in verses 17 through 24, it says that the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Again, this is a very sobering account of God's judgment on the earth. And some might wonder, like, how could God do such a thing? As we discussed at the beginning, is is God some kind of monster for doing something like this? Can we really worship a God who kills off the vast majority of the earth's population with a worldwide flood. 
Well, in answer to these kinds of questions, I'd like to lay out six principles for us to keep in mind as we consider the judgment and the wrath of God. First, the Bible makes no apology for God's judgment and wrath. It doesn't whisper to us in hushed tones about these things, but rather tells us quite plainly about how God pours out judgment on those who continue in their rebellion against him. From Genesis to Revelation, we see stories of him punishing people for their sins. And yes, that includes the New Testament. As J.I. Packer insightfully observes, People who do not actually read the Bible confidently assure us that when we move from the Old Testament to the New, the theme of divine judgment fades into the background. But if we examine the New Testament, even in the most cursory way, we find at once that the Old Testament emphasis on God's action as judge, far from being reduced, is actually intensified. The entire New Testament is overshadowed by the certainty of a coming day of universal judgment. And by the problem thence arising, how can we as sinners get right with God while there's still time? The the New Testament looks on to the, the day of judgment, the day of wrath, the wrath to come, and proclaims Jesus, the divine Savior, as also the divinely appointed judge. So as you can see, our main passage in Genesis isn't the only place where we read about God's judgment. Now, God's judgment and wrath are found throughout the Bible and arguably even more in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. So since the Bible makes no apology for God's judgment or wrath, neither should we. Then a second principle for us to keep in mind is that God's wrath doesn't have the qualities that ours often does. You know, when we think of someone today being filled with wrath or anger, uh, we usually imagine them losing control of their emotions and acting irrationally, right? Basically flipping out on someone and usually for no good reason at all. Maybe they're you know, their pride has been wounded or they didn't get their way with something. Whatever it was, though, they just go off on someone. You know, not that long ago, I, I witnessed a uh, road rage incident. I guess you could call it out near the, the Walmart uh, near West Mifflin. And uh, the, apparently, uh, at this four-way stop intersection, one of the drivers went before it was his turn to go. And so another driver uh, basically went berserk on the guy. I mean, this, this guy went, he was stopped at a red light right after he had went when it wasn't his turn to go. And so this, this guy driving a truck come up, came up right behind him, blocked him in, exited his truck, went up to the guy's window, and started screaming the most obscene things at him for probably close to a minute. I mean, I, I seriously thought this dude was about to throw a punch. All right, so that's... What we picture, I think, when we think of people being filled with anger and wrath at someone else. Yet if you read the Bible, that's not at all what God's wrath is like. Instead, God's wrath is always a righteous and necessary response 
to human wickedness. Again, God's wrath is always a righteous and necessary response to human wickedness. God's only angry when anger is appropriate and is never more angry than what the situation calls for. He also never loses control of himself, but always exhibits his anger in a manner that's measured and controlled. Even in Genesis 6 and 7, notice that God doesn't just lose his temper one day and make a spur-of-the-moment decision to flood the earth. No, we see in the text that he informs Noah of his intention to flood the earth over a hundred years before he carries it out. And moving on, a third principle for us to keep in mind is that God's wrath is ultimately something that people choose for themselves. In 1 Peter 3.20, Peter talks about how God waited patiently in the days of Noah for people to repent. He waited for over a century, and yet nobody repented, even though they saw Noah building the ark and undoubtedly heard Noah testify about what God had said he was going to do in flooding the earth, they chose to continue in their rebellion. Therefore, I believe it's very appropriate to say that in a certain sense, that that drowning in the flood was something that those people chose for themselves. And the same can be said for all other instances where people suffer God's wrath as well. Again, to quote J.I. Packer, the decisive act of judgment upon the lost is the judgment which they pass upon themselves by rejecting the light that comes to them in and through Jesus Christ. In the last analysis, all that God does subsequently in judicial action toward the unbeliever, whether in this life or beyond it, is to show him and lead him into the full implications of the choice he has made. The unbeliever has preferred to be by himself, without God, defying God, having God against him, and he shall have his preference. Nobody stands under the wrath of God except those who have chosen to do so. The essence of God's action in wrath is to give men what they choose in all of its implications. Nothing more And equally nothing less. God's readiness to respect human choice to this extent may appear disconcerting and even terrifying. But it is plain that his attitude here is supremely just. What God is hereby doing is no more than to ratify and confirm judgments which people have already passed on themselves. By the course of action they've chosen to follow. And that leads us right into the fourth principle for us to consider, which is that judgment and wrath are necessary, essential aspects of God's moral perfection. Think about all the evil that takes place in this world. All the violence, rape, abuse, Genocide and countless other atrocities. Would a God 
who didn't take any action in response to such things really be a good God? Would a God who treated wickedness and righteousness the same way really be righteous himself? Obviously not. I once heard a preacher named Paul Washer talk about how people will sometimes tell him that God can't hate because, like we said, God is love. And his response is that God must hate because God is love. You see, loving what's good requires hating what's evil. Loving babies, for example, requires hating abortion. Loving abused women requires hating sex trafficking. Therefore, in order for God to be good and righteous and, yes, even loving, it's necessary for him to judge wickedness. His judgment and wrath are essential aspects of his moral perfection and even of his love. God wouldn't be loving if he didn't judge sin. Then a fifth principle to keep in mind is that it's the anticipation of God's future judgment that enables us to forgive wrongs committed against us. And when I speak of wrongs committed against us, I'm not talking about people hurting your feelings, let's say. I'm talking about people who wrong us in some very significant ways. Acts uh, committed against us that have lasting consequences. If someone ever does something like that to you, it's natural to crave revenge. Yet when we understand that God will one day make sure that every sin is punished, it frees us from feeling like we have to dole out that punishment ourselves. As God says in Romans 12, 19, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And notice that he doesn't say to just stop worrying about it. No, he helps us stop worrying about it by assuring us that he himself will take care of things. And I think there's something in us that needs to hear that. If we've ever been the the victim of a significant act of evil. Listen, forgiveness isn't pretending that something didn't happen. Rather, it's referring the matter to God so that he can take care of it instead of you trying to take care of it. Rest assured that no one is getting away with anything. I think uh, Miroslav Volf makes this point very well. Uh, Volf is a Christian theologian at Yale and is from the country of Croatia, and as many of you may know, Croatia um, was the site of a horrible genocide a few decades ago, and uh, Wolf is coming out of that, and he apparently watched as some of his friends and family were slaughtered before his eyes, and so as a Christian theologian, he's had to think through how you can forgive people for crimes like that. So again, we're not just talking about people who hurt your feelings. We're talking about folks who kill your family. How can you ever forgive that? 
Miroslav Volf says that one component of being able to extend that kind of forgiveness is believing in a God who judges sin. Listen to what he writes. To the person who is inclined to dismiss the belief in divine vengeance, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of your lecture? A Christian attitude toward violence. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home to believe in God's refusal to judge. If God were not angry at injustice, God would not be worthy of our worship. The certainty of God's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. In other words, the only way that we can relinquish our right to demand payment now for the ways people have wronged us is to believe that God will eventually sort things out. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, he says. And believing that is the only way that you and I can be free from the deepest levels of bitterness and hatred and despair. So that's another reason why the idea of God's judgment isn't something we should shun, but rather something we should embrace. Then a sixth and final principle for us to keep in mind is that God's judgment is completely and utterly deserved. When people rebel against the God who created them and who's showered them with blessing on top of blessing, they deserve to be punished for their rebellion. They've essentially committed what amounts to cosmic treason against the God of the universe. And therefore, we should expect God to show them judgment, to to hold them responsible for their sins. That's the normal and appropriate pattern for the way things typically operate, right? Crime deserves punishment. So it shouldn't surprise us when we read stories in the Bible about God judging people. Instead, you know what should surprise us? It's God's mercy. That's the truly astonishing thing. So as we look at a passage like Genesis 6 and 7, the astonishing thing isn't that God would judge so many and save so few, but rather that he'd have mercy in saving anyone at all. If there's anything scandalous in these chapters, it's that God saves Eight unworthy people, Noah and his family, from the justice that they deserved. Because as we've already said, even though Noah was was righteous when compared to other people in the world at that time, he was still sinful, as we're going to see pretty clearly next week in Genesis 9. And so for him to be spared from God's judgment, it's astonishing. And likewise, the truly astonishing, even scandalous thing today 
isn't that God condemns sinners to hell, but rather that he shows mercy to any hell-deserving sinners at all by rescuing them from the judgment that they deserve and redeeming them from their sin. And so hopefully all, all these six principles help us see that the God of Genesis 6 and 7 is indeed a God who's altogether worthy of our worship, even as he judges people for their sin. And all this talk about God's judgment should uh, lead us to do something else as well, and that is to consider where we stand before this holy and just God. Our sins might not be as bad as those of people in Noah's day, but let's not forget that we also have sinned against God. Instead of following his ways, we've so often followed our own ways. Instead of seeking to exalt him, we've so often sought to exalt ourselves. We've done things we shouldn't have done, said things we shouldn't have said, and thought things we shouldn't have thought, with the result that we stand condemned before God. And the Bible teaches that God's judgment will come just as surely as the floodwaters of Genesis 7. Like the flood, it might be delayed for a long time, but make no mistake, it's coming. As Jesus himself says with reference to this coming judgment in Luke 17, 26 and 27, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So be warned that destruction is coming and that it will come so suddenly, Jesus says, that the majority of people in this world be, will be caught off guard. And even if this judgment doesn't come in your lifetime or my lifetime, each one of us will still, of course, one day die and stand before God. There's no escaping that. And yet, thankfully, the good news of the gospel is that God has provided a way for us to be saved. Just like he provided the ark for Noah and his family so that they could be spared from the flood, he's provided us with a way to be saved from his judgment as well. And that way is through Jesus. And through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to pay for our sins. Instead of us having to suffer God's judgment like we deserved, Jesus actually suffered that judgment in our place on the cross. In his unimaginable love, Jesus took on himself the judgment that we deserved. He took it. And so it's through the cross that God's provided an ark of salvation, as it were, that rescues us from the coming judgment. And only those who enter that ark 
will be saved. And so the choice is yours. Will you enter the ark like Noah and his family by renouncing your sins and looking to Jesus for rescue? Or will you refuse to enter the ark and endure the consequences you've chosen for yourself? You know, Jesus stands ready to save you, even now, even today, if you'll simply look to him and put your trust in him for rescue. He's got his arms wide open. He's already accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished. And now stands ready for you to look to him, to receive all of the benefits of what he's done. Will you do that even today?